Hey y'all, welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kyle Wing from EPAM Continuum. I might be able to tell people I'm in the innovation business, but what innovation actually means is sometimes lost on me. I promise you, I'm good at my job. But really, what is innovation? What does good innovation look like? What's terrible innovation? What's masquerading as innovation and tarnishing its good name? Our guest today helps answer some of these questions, but as our favorite guests do, they leave more questions on the table than they started with. Andy Boynton is the John and Linda Powers Family Dean at the Boston College Carroll School of Management. He's a first-time guest to the Resonance Test, but a longtime friend of ours. A couple years ago, we worked with Andy to redesign the core curriculum at Boston College, and he's been an A1 champion of our work and process ever since. Today, our very own head of client engagement, Toby Botorf, walks with Andy through everything from the nature of design thinking, to how innovation is not a one-time episodic thing, to the way BC is applying some of what they learned from working with us to their current pandemic response. It's a hectic but informative ride. Buckle up. We're talking today to Andy Boynton, an old friend of Continuum, um, and this is going to be an interesting conversation because it's a twofer. Andy, you're both a business leader and an educator at Boston College, so um, we're going to get to talk about innovation and the work that you are doing with your students around teaching management, uh, and we'll talk about education too, which is your industry. Um, so I'm curious what your students are learning right now about innovation, because I have found that that term itself has become so elastic. We don't always know that we're talking uh, about the same thing when we're talking about it with our clients. What's your sense of where innovation fits in the, the uh, School of Business's School of Management's curriculum? Well, it fits in different places because no one monitors the one way we teach anything. So, you know, different professors have a different take on different things. So I'll give you a sense of what I think is going on in the curriculum throughout the faculty. Um, I think one element of innovation that is important in the classroom and in terms of what students are doing when they are going through their activities and projects and so forth is something close and near and dear to your heart, which is an area that, in fact, Continuum helped invent, is design thinking. Um, I still think it's relevant for young women and men who, and managers who have not been exposed to it in a rigorous way in terms of deep understanding of customers or context, in terms of really building that understanding, and then the, the importance of uh, uh, holistic innovation, not technology-driven, but around the context and prototyping and the rest. It's still an important part of what they need to learn, and it's an important part of the curriculum. So I think that's alive and well as it should be. It may not be new and the latest, but it's still fundamental. And I think it's still fundamental to what you, a continuum, do so very well. Um, I think another part of innovation is kind of where it fits into strategy and how firms that are trying to understand their structural position in industries and understand how their competencies and resources uh, are shaped up relative to competition, that they need to be engines of innovation. Um, 
and that innovation is not a one-time episodic thing, but it's an ongoing element of, of organizational renewal, strategic renewal. I think the way that if I have a case study, Amazon looks at it and the importance of constant experimentation, um, big and small, and the the importance of of moving ideas and so forth. And as as just kind of continuous renewal to just keep pace with what's happening in competitive markets. And I think the third area innovation is creeping in, has its home in economics where a recent Nobel Prize winner, Paul Romer, in his theories of growth of the firm, fundamentally his theories are anchored in the importance of ideas and how ideas and the development of ideas and how ideas are in fact um, can be shaped and molded and shared and replicated, how ideas really drive innovation and growth. And I think relevant to firms, not macroeconomic theory, and Romer talks about organizations how organizations have to become basically idea factories, constantly producing, finding, collecting, and importing and trying new ideas. That it's not about, you know, competitive advantage isn't going to be about who has always the best brand or the best location or whatever, but it's really which organizations have the better ideas and the the ability to find new ideas, discover new ideas, and put those ideas into play. And um, I think that's another er- element of innovation. One so of the things that different, different answers, Andy. One of the things that you've written about, um, talked about too, uh, that that um, I think we do pretty well um, as a source of ideas is helping build that connective tissue, as you've called it, to connecting strategy and products uh, to customers in a really deep way. We think that's a renewable source of ideas. I think it is, it's, and it's very consistent with everything I'm saying, and I'll take it to what you're describing, Toby, this connective tissue, which is something I really, I think I saw talking over and over and working with you and your colleagues, because it's one thing for a firm to say, okay, we need a certain product in a certain segment to address these certain customers. Well, that's fine, but at the end of the day, what really matters is that that product or service is very, very special to those customers, that it's really linked to the lives of those customers, that the product does important jobs for those customers. And if it's not, it's just another mundane, boring product, like about 90% of the products or services that we touch. And it's that connective tissue that, and I think Continuum does it as well as anybody, where you, that's that deep understanding. The only way to create that, that special product that product that really is going to get a, a powerful response from a customer or a service from a customer is building that connective tissue. Now, some firms might be lucky now and then and find the right product, but the point is you've got to be able to repeat it and have a high batting average. And to do that, you need to have that connective tissue so that your products and your services as a, as a given firm are, in fact, truly differentiated versus everybody else's. Without that connective tissue, it's just you're hoping it happens. And, and that's not a great strategy. Yeah. I think that that um, hoping it happens or uh, educated guesswork, that, that other way of working um, has the appeal of, of being, frankly, faster than our way of working, human-centered design okay. or design thinking. And I think that the, the widespread adoption of agile 
in, in corporations has made speed um, more important than trajectory. Uh, and it's tended to devalue strategy a little bit. I think companies have overinvested in power and underinvested in steering. Um, and they'll just throw a whole bunch of ideas out into the market and let the market be their brain. Let 80% of these things fail. Um, I think there's going to be a return to strategy. What do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, well, I, I'm going to come. I, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, throwing a lot of products and services out and seeing which ones stick sounds very expensive to me. Um, and that I, I, I think that there's elements where at the elements of a firm where speed and agile matters. But let me tell you where it doesn't matter is when you're really trying to identify what a product or service should look like during design. At some point, you've got to slow down and think things through. And you need to spend time with customers and spend time in their home. If it's business is business, spend time in a place of work. And, and you've got to immerse yourself in that context to understand what the product or service should really do to make it, to differentiate it. And at times you got to slow down and think strategically and understand the lives of a business or the lives of people. And then once you figured it out and once then, okay, rapidly prototype, let's do it fast. Let's test it fast. Yeah. Let's fail fast. Let's fail fast and let's learn fast. But that front end, you got to slow down. I think if it's all speed, 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 to me, speed equals dumb. Yeah. We have uh, one of one of our favorite uh, things we ever heard a client say is that, that what we help them with is um, avoiding the problem of a perfect landing at the wrong airport. Right. Um, it's important to know where you're going. So you and I here are um, singing from the same hymnal, but we do hear repeatedly from our clients um, that speed matters to them. And we're looking for ways to work faster without sacrificing uh, quality. Uh, one of the ways we're trying to do that is set up innovation in a more of a portfolio model so things can happen in parallel and learn from each other. Um, trying to do things uh, more in parallel and less sequentially. Um, what do you think about our the potential to do business design and kind of frame up a market opportunity um, as a hypothesis before we talk to customers? Yeah, I think it's – I uh, well – Look, I think there's an element where what you do, you and I know enough about how, what you guys do and how you do it that probably can be done faster. I mean, at some point, I think some of what you do is based on people's beliefs about the religion of what you do. They, you know, the, you know, you're laughing, right? You know, you got to follow these steps. It has to take this much time. That there are no shortcuts, or where in fact. You know, there's always the true believer risk of a true believer, right? I never, I always distrust true believers. So I think what you do can be done faster. I applaud you for looking at ways. I know you and your senior colleagues are going to do it faster. But let me tell you, I think if someone comes to you and a client and says, you got to do it faster, I would point out one thing. I'd say, yep, we can do it faster, but we need to take this much time. And an investment in this much time at the front end and if you walk them through the whole value chain of what it's going to take to deliver that product to market, in fact, spending some time up front makes it faster in the long run. And by the way, it's going to bring success faster. I mean, what, do they want to get a lousy product to market fast or do they want to get a great product to market a little bit slower and then be able to run that and use it and, 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 and derivations of it for a long time? So, so I'd be hesitant to try to do what you do too quickly. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, I think one of the things that we struggle with sometimes is um, some of the, I don't know, it's theatrics of innovation or fetishizing speed or something. But I think that uh, I've seen situations where a company would rather get something out fast and wrong and pivot because they get um, early indicators sooner. Doesn't matter that they're wrong and they get credit for pivoting. Uh, so, you know, those, those are some of the weird perverse incentives to um, stumbling around at high speeds. Well, I, look, I agree that, 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 that there should be credit for get, if you get it wrong, you pivot. But the fact is, as good as you are, you might get it a little bit wrong. But I'd rather be close to getting it right and be a little bit wrong than wildly wrong. And, um, and pivoting when you're a little bit wrong is a lot, you, you know, you're going to be able to pivot more effectively, more successfully, and, 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 and hit the nail on the head. So I, I just think you, that, that some things you can't, you can't, you can't um, put into a, 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 you know, a machine. Right. Then you can't put thinking into a machine. You can't. You can't. You can't create a rapid process for really high quality R and D for really high quality, deep connective tissue thinking like you do. Um, sometimes thought takes a little bit of time. But I realize your business and industry is being commoditized. People are saying they can do exactly what Continuum does and do it a lot faster. You and I know it's wrong, but it's tempting to managers and clients who are pressed for speed and budget. But you know that that's the that's the pressure on you. You that it, at yeah. some point you think you can demonstrate your value, and uh, it might take longer, but you will create that connective tissue that pays off in the long run. So I think what we're doing right now is we're placing our bets on our innovation hit rate, that the results get out. Um, and it's a, it's a, as now that we're a part of EPAM, um, we have the ability to get things through um, all the way to market and to scale. Well, I, I would focus on two things, the hit rate, which I agree, but the other is the um, positive contribution. So you're not just hitting singles. Yeah. That you're getting a higher hit rate and your slugging percentage is high. I like I, I, yeah, I think you like, like that. You write that down, Toby. <laughs> that, 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 that matters. You know, it's one thing to hit a bunch of singles. It's the other to have a high hit rate and be getting a bunch of doubles and triples and some home runs. There's the positive contribution to the firm is huge. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what we're hoping for from our portfolio approach is that, you know, when we're hitting a double, somebody's on base, you know, it yeah. has a multiplying effect. Yeah. We can ride this metaphor all the way home. Uh, Let's let's switch up and talk about um, colleges and universities. Um, I have uh, I have a son in college and a daughter in high school, both juniors. So this is fresh in my life, and obviously it's what you live every day. Um, we're going through you know these podcasts happen at a specific point in time. Um, we're in the we're in the month fourth month after the COVID peak, and it seems like we're peaking again. Uh, just yesterday, UMass declared that they were not going to reopen in this fall. Um, I'm curious about uh, life at BC. Well, we're, I mean, we're reopening. We're yeah. confident uh, we're going to start August 31st. Um, we are, at this point, BU, Northeastern. We're all reopening. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we've, we, have, we have 
we've thought through every element of what we do, whether it's dining, whether it's uh, massive student testing and faculty and staff up front, and then uh, systematically throughout the semester, contact tracing. We've reinvented how we're going to teach. It's been incredibly collaborative all summer across the university. Um, so we teach in a way where we de-densify the classroom, yet still provide a really personalized, uh, customized learning experience. Um, you know, there's a lot, so every element of this university has been scrutinized, and we're reinventing it in a way that will be safe and, we think, a great learning formative experience, which is what we're about. You know, the one thing we can't control is what's going to happen when we bring the students to campus. They're going to be in dorms. And hopefully there won't be a, 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 a surge beyond what we kind of expect. I mean, there's going to be some cases, right? But we're hoping that there's not that surge. And if there is, we're prepared. We have beds and floors prepared and isolation strategies, and those students will still get educated. So that's what life at BC has been about for the last four or five months. And um, we're ready to go. It has to have been a summer unlike any other. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's unprecedented what we're going through. You yeah. know, it's unprecedented. And um, it's been fascinating. And I'll tell you, a lot of what I've learned from you, you guys have, have really paid off. We've prototyped some of our teaching solutions. We found things we needed to improve. We designed new solutions. We prototyped it over and over. And um, a lot of what I've learned from you and your good colleagues, I've been using here. You know, so I'm I'm curious about that aspect of it, prototyping new ways of teaching, because we, um, you know, we learned it when we were working on their curriculum redesign. Faculty, especially tenured faculty, really value their independence, and you can't make me take a training over the summer. Um, it has to be opt in and on their terms. How has that been going? Well, I think. That what's really good and is I think what we did with you reshaping our core curriculum and the focus we have here on teaching. I mean, it's a major research institution, but teaching is really important, as you all discovered to us when we redid our core curriculum, collaborating with you, um, is that we have a culture where we have shared our learnings throughout the summer with each other in a way where you would never know that it's individual faculty kind of resisting change. And we are working in the business school with the English department and the political science department and the whole core curriculum uh, of the, which we reinvented with you. And we have Zoom meetings collectively with each other. And that foundation, I think, a lot of it has been laid in part by redoing the core curriculum in a collaborative way with you and so forth. So, you know, you don't flip a switch and say, okay, let's innovate together. Let's be collaborative. You got to have the right culture in place. Yeah. And, and we, and what I think we're all is we have it in place, which has allowed innovation and testing and learning from each other flourish. So it's been kind of uh, exciting to see it in action. That's really great. I, yeah. I have another question for you um, about culture. It's really about kind of undergraduate life. Um, so let me, let me come at it with a bit of a preamble. Because in addition to COVID, um, universities have been for a while navigating uh, digital transformation. And one of the things that digital transformation does it, is that it makes it easier to unbundle offerings. 
And we, we recently wrote a report on, um, you know, how universities can respond to COVID. And, and we talked about college as a bundle uh, of the degree, the credential, intellectual growth or the learning, uh, the relationships you form that'll last your lifetime, and an environment for safe independence, a place to grow up. Um, and I'm curious about that last one and, and campus culture. You've got uh, a housing agreement addendum with a lot of conditions for students returning to campus. Um, but students are going to campus to be free of their parents for the first time. And they like risk. You know, every 19-year-old is bulletproof. Um, how are you thinking through that? You, you, it said you were expecting some kids to get sick, but yeah. you know, we're keep a lid on it. But, you know, you're not going to bring 9,000 undergrads to campus. Just you're going to have some uh, element. You know, I'm, when I say expecting, and I just think statistically, right? You know, you know that will be that will be well within lower than what the state would want. That's the idea. But you know, well, we, you have to. We have to manage the risk. Yeah. And I think you know what we're going to have students taking. You know, here you know here are the guidelines. Here are the the norms we expect. Uh, I frankly I can't remember right off the head. Is it a pledge? But we're asking them to kind of take a pledge, so to speak. Tech, you know, of here's what your behavior should look like. Um, so we're asking them for a, a greater sense of responsibility. We're doing what we can physically to de-densify, make sure that all the elements, whether it's dining, classrooms, etc., are de-densified. So you're right. Uh, you, you have 18 to 22-year-olds, and you're not going to change them, but we're going to ask them to really be conscious and responsible and deliver their part of the bargain, and we'll deliver ours. So it's, it's kind of trying to approach it like you would as a, as a firm, every element, the human element, the technical element, the physical yeah. element, the, the, you know, the, the, bio, the, the, the medical element, all of this is being intertwined kind of as a, as in a systemic way here. And we're addressing it very systemically, just like other universities are trying to do other businesses are trying to do. Um, and we're, we're doing it in a way that's consistent with our culture, our structure, our mission, our values. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's wrestling with this, and there's a lot of people writing about it right now. Um, I don't know if you've been tracking or you have an opinion about uh, Scott Galloway, yeah. uh, teaches at NYU, writes about this, but he he's done a study where he's analyzed 400 universities and placed them into quadrants, those that will thrive, those that will survive, those that will struggle, and those that are seriously challenged. Uh, he's got BC in the thrive quadrant, but uh, curious how you think about his overall analysis. Well, I mean, I actually looked at it. Uh, first of all, kudos to Scott. I've never met him. But he, I, I looked at his background. He's a guy who understands how to be in the right place at the right time with some ideas. And that's not easy. <laughs> and, um, and, and so kudos to him. The analysis is, this is not what I would call, um, you know, rigorous research if it was applied to norms of social science or physical science or anything like that. But he He's getting at something with his analysis. I mean, so if you have a few international students, that helps um, because you don't have that problem, right? Or if you have a large endowment and highly rated, that helps. So if you look at the key variables, I understand what he's getting at. Um, and and, and at, the, at the end of it, put his analysis aside, because I think directionally, broadly, he's getting at some things that are important. This issue of thrive or universities that will struggle or fail, this is not new to COVID. See, the issue is 
<laughs> you know, these universities, we, others, are facing a demographic cliff. The number of 18-year-olds are diminishing. And many, many universities have 40, 50% discount rates off their tuition. And they're not doing that because they're generous. They're doing that to get students. And there's these universities, there's a lot of them that are going to struggle because you just have fewer and fewer students. There is an effect, I think, over capacity. And yeah. so what I think COVID will do, it might hasten some of this. Like the finance, you know, we had too many banks. The financial crisis kind of hastened that. So I think some universities, not to their fault, but the fact is they lived in a world of um, of uh, munificence of a lot of students, yeah. baby boomers, more students, more increasing wealth. Now that demographic has shifted dramatically and it will shift over the next few years. So you add COVID to that, it's going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, in addition to the, the U.S.-based demographic shift, there's also the decline political in, in some ways, but um, a great decline in full freight paying foreign students. So, well, we're, and some universities, Boston College, because of frankly, great leadership for many years at the top and a great culture and great location and great, all sorts of things. We are, we're, I think we're, we're in the winter. We're going to survive. You know, we always try to get better, but we have a large endowment. We have a huge number of undergraduates that want to go here. We have a great experience when they get here. We have athletics. Not that we're unique, but we happen to be fortunate enough and have had the leadership to put us in this position. But many organizations that are universities that are strong or colleges may not survive this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're seeing that, um, you know, some have overbuilt and, and spent a lot of money on uh, student amenities, water parks, and things like that. Uh, right. Some have just been limping on for a really long time, and they're going to get. Um, what I'm seeing more is that they're getting absorbed into healthier institutions rather than shutting down completely. Right. Exactly. Right. That, you know, typical strategic responses. You know, acquisitions, partnerships, alliances, yeah. anything to survive. Well. Andy, I'm I'm hoping that you do more than uh, survive this fall. I hope it's a it's a great semester for you. Um, certainly, there will be things outside of the classroom that we are all learning. Um, life as a teacher, for sure, and, and during these times. So, really grateful for this time and this conversation. And I hope you have a great fall, Toby. You too. I enjoyed it, and I hope to uh, be able to at least zoom with you this fall a couple times. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting, focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we are very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real, because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Andy Boynton, it's been a pleasure as always. A challenging year is forthcoming. It was great to have some of your time. Toby Batorf is the best sparring partner for Andy there is. Our producer, Ken Gordon, cranks a generator during a storm. Kit Palalos is our sound engineer, still fixing everything in post. And I'm your host, Kyle Wing, from the floor of my closet, still figuring out what the hell post means. Until next time, thank you. Thank you.